that would be unless I preach an extra hour. <laughs> Greetings in Jesus' name. Welcome on a Saturday evening. There's something about a week of meetings, and you get to Saturday evenings, and there's a sort of a, a welling mindset that uh, let's just make this short and just kind of kick back and get ready for the long day tomorrow. But, um, yeah, we do have time, and uh, I don't really plan to preach any longer than any other time. I would like to look at the last story. But before we do that, let's go to the children's question. I asked you this question last night. What happened to the man who was chased by a lion and a bear? What happened? Young lady, go ahead. Didn't you have your hand up? He got bit by a snake. My dad told me this one years ago when I was a boy. and He said when he told his sisters, they thought, sure, he was making it up. Now, if you read the story in Amos 5, verse 19, God is talking through the prophet to the children of Israel, and he's calling them back. And he says that the way their lives are going to work out, it's not actually a real story. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a, a word picture that he has drawn up. And he wants them to think about it. Now, the way it reads in the King James Version, it says that um, what you're going to find out is it's like this man that if he, he met a bear and as he was running away, I'm sorry, he met a lion, and as he was running away, he would meet a bear. Or if he went into the house and put his hand on the wall, then he, a snake would bite him. But I, I've learned that in many uh, translations, I don't know how many is many, but numerous translations, they change the language, and so it's a whole sequence. And um, it does sort of sound like a really bad day. If you would, if you would say, whoops, here's a lion, chug, chug, choo-choo, and away you go, and oops, here's a bear, and then you just rip for your house. And, and you would be just panting because you're just running with all your might. I how many of you ever ran away from a lion or a bear? Do you know how fast you run? faster than you ever did before. Do you know how long you run? As far as you need to go. Um, and uh, he gets there, and he, you know how it is. You know, we're playing prisoner space, or we're playing fox and geese, and, and, and just like that, out of the crack in the wall comes this snake and bites him. That would just make you feel like turning the switch off for the day. Um, but God has a very serious message that he's telling the Israelites at that moment, and he's saying that you are in, you're, you're in trouble. And what you're going to find is you're going to have days like that. And it's all because you won't listen to me. You won't follow me. And I'm calling you and I'm pleading you that you would listen so you don't have to meet the lion, the bear, or the snake. And um, so anyway, thanks for finding that. It's a little bit obscure, but it's there. The man that got chased by a lion and a bear and he went into his house and got bit by a snake. Now... I'm not going to ask you one for tomorrow morning. I'm going to give you one, and we'll look at it tomorrow evening yet. And um, I tried my hardest to make this one the hardest. Um, I'm kind of hoping even the adults don't get it, but I'll, I, I think sometimes in Virginia they're smarter than they are in PA, so you just might get it. Here's the question. What is the name of the man who looked into heaven and saw his name written on the wall? What is the name of the man who looked into heaven and saw his name written on the wall? I'll give you a hint. 
a concordance isn't going to help you a bit. Now you have a hint. <laughs> I don't even know if Google's going to help you on this one. Because the way that I discovered it was just going through a Sunday school lesson, and I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about about three different aspects, and suddenly it dawned on me what was happening. And, and the Bible's not going to say, and he looked into heaven and saw his name on the wall. So have at it. See, what, see if you can find it. All right, let's just sing the first and last verse of the uh, theme song. Maybe tomorrow night we'll sing through the whole song as one grand finale. But um, first and last verses, can you start us? Open your Bibles again to Luke 15. We're not through the chapter yet. Three stories that Jesus told as a response to some grumbling Pharisees. The sinners and publicans had drawn near to hear him, and they said, Tut, tut, this is no sense. What's going on here? He's receiving sinners, to which the rest of the ages say hallelujah. But he has these three stories. And we've looked at the first and the second, and the last starts at verse 11. And he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me, and he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent unto him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. 
And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years did I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fattest calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. It's a tender story to see lost being found again. And um, to see the, uh, the, 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 the incredulous, incredible, awesome, majestic forgiveness of the Father. And, and we think about that. And, and, and we hold this hope, and it's a valid hope. It's an anchored hope that we can find the same. We do. Now, why are there three stories? I don't know for sure. I poured over it because I was assigned to, and um, I came up with these different understandings if you've ever been to a third world country where people walk more than they drive, you know that as they walk, crowds gather and crowds disperse and people move in groups. And I can, I can visualize this scene unfolding where Jesus has stopped at the eating house or at the, in, in the house of the one who invited him, the public and sinners. And the Pharisees have come down from the temple in their royal robes and in their high haughty faces and their looking down eyes and they're just scanning there and they're checking to see if they're appreciated. And then they see Jesus with these people. And the scorn begins and the condemnation begins and the criticism begins. And Jesus steps up from the table and he walks over to the door or he walks out into the street and he starts to talk to these men. And maybe with the first one, he's looking across the street over, uh, out of the village. And over there on the hill is the, is the shepherd. And he's, and he's pointing. And he's talking about sheep and shepherds. And they understand. And they're listening. And he stops. And um, the crowd is gathered around. And he stands over. I know he did this one other time. But maybe he took about a 12-year-old boy. And he, he put his arm around his shoulder and he started talking about coins and finding them in the house and they're listening and whatever they were doing when they, as they were listening. Then he gets to this third story and he kind of backs up against the shop and he folds his arms and he starts looking at him. He said, I got one more story for you. And what you have here is a, 
it is a little exercise of the master teacher where he starts by putting their focal point away and he starts bringing it around. And by the time he gets to the third story, he's just talking to him. Right? Wasn't there elder brothers and younger brothers standing right there? It seems that way to me. I think that this third story is focused on the religiously trained, spiritually aware. You have a prodigal that leaves the father and does exactly what he wants to, but he knows where the father is to be found when he's ready to give up. In verse 18, you have an older son that is in the house, and he works in the field. And the only reason he isn't in the house when it's time to be in the house is because he don't want to. It's his decision. I ain't going in there. And the father comes out to him. I believe that by story number three, Jesus was focused on the people that were grumbling. And he was telling them a story for their own benefit. Their own learning. Their own self-introspection. Now this story says that there a certain man had two sons. In verse 11... You have a younger son. We call him the prodigal, but that's not a Bible word, you know. Prodigal's one we've added since King James. Um, it's, it's a word that you can find in your dictionary. Um, the, it means the way we're... Actually, my dictionary about number three or number four says that the definition is a wayward son who spends an inheritance but returns home to find a father who forgives him. That's actually in your dic. No, it's in my dictionary. I don't know if you use the same one I do. But that's, it's one of the lesser ones. It's not the first one. But it's based on verse 13. This, this lad, this younger son, maybe he was 42, I don't know. But he, go, he gathers that which is the portion of goods that fall to him. He, he demanded early inheritance. And he took it as soon as he got it or soon after that he was gone. And he squandered it. Look at verse 13. Took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living until it was gone. But then you have this elder son who is in. He's considered to be part of the father's house. He's never left. He's at the right place. He's a worker in the field, so that means he is a, a contributor, a contribution, maybe even a leader in the organization that has been set up by the father. And um, there he is. But he is being exposed in the story as in spite of all the things that he has done right, there is a pretty fundamental flaw in his person. And his fundamental flaw is that he can't see anything right with receiving sinners. Dad, he squandered everything. Yes, but he's come home. But Dad... I was always good for you. Yeah, you were, but he's come home. And um, after a while, he's angry in verse 28. And so these are the two main characters, the younger one who goes out and the elder one who stays in. But both need a sermon. Both need to be focused on by the master because they need to look at themselves. I think that that is one of the big differences between a sheep that is wandering away, lost and doesn't know how to get back, 
and a coin that can't help themselves, and the sweeper has to come and find it with the light in her hand, as opposed to sons who are given the tools and the structure, and they know if they're in or they're out, and when it's time to come in, whether it's back from the pig pen or in from the field, it's up to them whether it'll happen or not. Nobody's going to come and get them because they have everything they need to come back. They know the path. They know the flow. And that's one of the big differences between number three versus number one and number two. So let's just move through this parable and let's just pick out truths that we can observe that will teach us about these two boys and and what is what what is just wisdom things to know about we'll start with the younger cuz he's first in the story lesson number 1 that i gather from this second third story is that any story that starts out give me is probably not going to end very well verse 12 and he said to his father give me give me father give me the portion of goods I want, I crave, I desire. The King James word for this is lust. And we're not talking about morality or impurity. It is, it is the passions of the heart that, that hunger. Give it. I want more money. I want more clothes. I want more status. I want more. Give me. Give me. Any story that begins with give me is probably going to go bad. And this one did. It's where you start to suddenly realize that something is not normal or proper. It might be a better way to say it. What is wrong with the giving request? Now, I know that Solomon told, prayed to the Lord to give him wisdom. And um, that was honored. But the prayer of give me wisdom is fundamentally, um, ingredient-wise, it's, it's, it's golfs apart. I mean, when you want something, when, when the give me is focused on temporal as opposed to spiritual, it's two different requests. It's just the way it is. And um, this request is a subtle sign of, I want to be in control. I wish, is what little children say. We had one, maybe several, that would skip the W, and I can still hear them. I, I wish, I wish I had a bicycle. And, and all that. But that ishing is so normal to any of us. I mean, I wish it would rain, okay? Well, yeah, it would be helpful, but God is in control. And this man went awry when he began to say, give me. The son wanted the things that he could get from the father so that he could control them, not his father. He had plans for the inheritance, and the father was getting in the way with the things that he craved and had wanted to control and had plans for. And it explains why he went into a far country. If he demanded the inheritance, there, there, there's nothing practically helpful about saying to the father, give me and I'll stay here and work on the farm. You see, when we demand control, it's so that we can leave. We can go out. Because out west is where the cowboys run free. Go west, young man. And you can be what you want to be. You can go and nobody's going to put foot on your land and nobody's going to steal your cattle. I wish, I wish. And um, he went into this far country 
It's symbolic, one writer said, of the empty expanse that is outside of the presence of God. Now, the problem is, is that men have been going out from the Father's presence to their far country, and um, they are surprised when they get there. Because there's at least two Bible references. Psalm 139, David says, I, I tried to go way up high, and I tried to go way down in the water. And I tried to go down into hell, and I tried to go over there. And everywhere when I got there, behold, Jehovah was there. <laughs> He's everywhere. And um, that is exactly why the presence of the Father went with the lad. And when he was down in the pig pen and he started to think about something besides what can I blow my money on, he remembered his father and where he is and how to connect back to him. Is control or wanting control a negative sign? Well, the first step away from God is always the desire to be one's own authority. Now, some people call this the path of autonomy. That's a big word, but autonomy just simply means the desire for self-expression or self-government. We can, we can do anything. We can go anywhere as long as I say it's okay. As long as you do it my way. And, and this, this comes right back into the church. I, I'm amazed at how it's in my own soul and needs to be crucified fairly regularly. And then I see it up and down the benches and it needs to be crucified fairly regularly. And then I go into another village and there it is too. This old man that wants to be in charge. And that's, that's kind of what started this whole story off. Give it to me. I'm going. I know what I want to do with it. I want to be in control. Lesson number two is that the prodigal, this boy that goes out, is a fool. Now, there is scriptures in, in the Sermon on the Mount that say you be careful who you call a fool. I'm going to step back to Proverbs and use some of those definitions and work with them. Because there is such a thing as a fool. It's that, it, okay, the fool has several levels in Proverbs. The first one is the silly man, the one who has never been taught, and he does strange things because he doesn't know better. And then there's a fool that knows better, but he doesn't care, and he does it anyway. And um, this man is a fool because he was foolish enough to think that the far country could be better than the house that he was in. But this is the pull. There's youth that face it. There's middle-aged people that face it. And I'll suddenly find a man, and he is way from the com away from the commitment he made at 17 and the church he was baptized in. And how did it happen? Well, there was a hankering, and he thought that out there was something that he didn't have. The far country only looked the way it did from the father's house. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but most of the places we wish to go in life on our bucket lists aren't quite as thrilling as they seem like they were when we were watching them from the Father's house. And that's what the far country was to this man. The best day temptation ever looks is before we get into it. That's the way it works for me. Um, sin always looks better in front of us than behind us, and I do mean always. This man is a fool because he uses the goods of the Father for riotous living. Why would he do that? Why would he use the inheritance of the Father for riotous living? Why didn't he just go get something else? Well, here's the deal. The poor boy had nothing else. You see, every wayward person that ever went out is going to use the goods of the Father to do it. 
gave you your breath this morning? Who gave you the intellect to decide if you will turn left or right at the end of the driveway? Where'd you get that? And every person who prodigalizes their... I just made that word up. (laughs) Any person who acts like this person is going to use the inheritance of the Father to do it. That's the way it looks to me. The tools that I have. The fact that I can stand up here and my legs don't buckle under me. Or will be the leg, the strength that I have will be the strength that I use to walk into the movie theater. Where did I get the inheritance? And this man was a fool because he used the father's things, squandered them to go out into this country. We operate with the permission of a holy God all the time. And in James chapter 4, he says, now if you want to go into the city tomorrow... Uh, What you ought to do if you're going to be wise is you ought to say, if the Lord will. And do you know why the Bible says that? Well, because when you get to that city, it will only be because the Father gave you some good so you could go. And so many of us get so stuck in our minds, we think we're good because we're smart and the smartness is what we developed. Now, we have a brother in our congregation that had a massive stroke two weeks ago. And the family cannot find anything for their dad for recovery except to fall on their faces and pray for strength. There is nothing else out there. Anything you ever use to go out into the world and live riotously will have come first from God. And that must be that point has to be driven home. Because once you grasp it, then you will see how utterly foolish and a fool a man is to take the Father's things and go out. Lesson number three, leaving the Father's house sets one on a course for the pig pen. This is not random at all. That, behold, once upon a time, a man left his father's house, and and by, 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 by some kind of strange evolution, or some freak of nature, or some unlucky break, he ended up in a pig pen. This is a repeatable pattern throughout the generations. That when a man leaves the father's house, he has only one place he's headed. And generation after generation after generation has been, been, been opening up to this reality. You see, leaving the house is a choice to leave the father. And every choice that you and I make throughout our days, this is strange the way it works, but I see this happening in my own life again and again. Every choice I make in a day's time, is a choice either to come back to the Father's house or to leave it. To disassociate from the Father, I don't need him right now. One of you brethren talked about that in your devotions, about how we, how was John, the flashlight, you keep God beside the flashlight and when you need light. This is the same concept that, that we, we are either making choices. One commentator said this, he said, riotous and sumptuous living always leads to famine. And always was underlined. This is not this is not somebody's casual inspiration. This is a law of sowing and reaping that has been repeated for the ages. Lesson number four. To end up in the pig pen twists a man's thinking. 
It says here that when he, when he got there, verse 16, he would fain have filled his belly with the husks. Now that is because of how hungry he was, the husks of Gorn. It's harvest time. Who's, who wants to go out to the field and have husk after church? What would, what, would, what would push a man to sit in a pig pen and wish for those husks? Well, that's what happens when you get to the pig pen. And um, I'm not talking about a literal pig pen. I'm talking about the pig pens of society. And if you're not familiar with them, I'm sure that we could go over to Front Royal or over to Winchester or rolling up to Altoona. Um, I know where they are in Altoona. The Motel 6 has three buildings. And the first two are for rent. If you want to come up there, you can go to Motel 6. Don't go back to the third building. That's where the druggies are. They don't heat it back there. They're laying back there. You, anytime you want to minister, all you have to do is go to building number three. There will be an inventory there for you to work with. It's a pig pen. And, and if you ever stop and talk to those people and try to bring them out, their thinking is so twisted by their sin. You can hardly even have a conversation with them. It's sad. But by the time the man got there, he was, he was starting to think like, well, if I would just eat the pig's food, I'd be... But the pig pen will twist your thinking. Lesson number five is that, according to this, people find themselves in the pig pen. Now, I'm playing with words, but you've heard this in before, where people go on trips or they start to backpack across America because they're trying to find themselves. Um, I can never use that line without going back to when I was about 11 or 12. We went to South Carolina to our, visit our cousins. And Sunday evening, after church, there had been a man that showed up for church in the morning, and he was there in the evening. And on the back porch, he had a group of people around him, and he was just talking to them. And I heard him tell the youth boys, my cousin and I were standing there, we were probably 10, 12 years old, and he said, well, see, I'm trying to find myself. And I looked at my cousin, he looked at me, whatever. We got home, he says to me, he said, that guy was weird. I said, I know he was. He said, he said he's trying to find himself and he was standing right there. And we couldn't figure out what in the world was going on that people would say something so dumb that I'm trying to find myself. Hello? Go look in a mirror. You'll be right there. Okay. And you know, the whole journey of trying to find yourself is just about as silly. We don't ever lose ourselves that I know of. It's just in our minds. But here we can say that this man, he came to his senses. He, he came to a realization of how far he has gone and some of the terrible things he has done and what he has done to the Father. Did you know that difficulty and disaster are common tools by which we find ourselves? There is a reason why captivity was brought to the land of Judea. There was a reason why kings and nations would come in the time of judges and take over the idolatrous Israel. One writer says that pain is the megaphone of God. Pain is God's method of planting the flag of truth in the midst of the castle of the ungodly. That was a lot of big words, but all he's saying is that it's not a bad thing when you start to hurt. Because that is the megaphone of God. That is, when, that is when men start to come to themselves. And it happened to this boy, young man, the younger son. He says, um, 
you know what? I don't have to be here. You know what? I can still go back. You know what? I can get back in the Father's house. I probably won't be a son, but I'm okay with that. I'd rather be a slave in the house than a free man in the pig pen. And, and, and that, that terrible stripping down of the man from what he had fallen, from what he had come down from, to see himself there, his eyes started to open. He could not see that when his pockets were full of change and the table was full of sumptuousness. But strip that all away and make it hurt a little bit or a whole lot and let the hunger pangs make your members tremble and suddenly clarity starts to come and truth begins to sink in. And it happened to the young man. People find themselves in the pig pen. Number six is that prodigals come back as servants. He, he knew better than to ask to be a son. Now God in his mercy does something that we can't explain. He does something that isn't even logical. He takes the slaves and says, I'll make you a son. But you're still a slave when you came back, right? That's what the rest of the Bible says. And, and this whole thing of how the man looked at himself, but he was okay with that. The man had designed, either smartly or stupidly, had designed a story. He had carried out a story that had stripped himself of the sonship. See, inheritance are one of the gifts of sonship, and he had blown that. He could not go back and get another inheritance. And that was some of the logic in his mind of, well, I'll just have to go back as a slave. And, and so he did. Now the father would have none of it. And, and you, just, you just see the work of Jesus and what that does for us and, and the, the, the pure joy of restoration and redemption that Jesus does. But the prodigal had to come back as a servant because he had... He had robbed himself of his own sonship with his own choices. And lesson number seven is that the father is ready and greatly desiring to receive sons even from the pig pen. Is it Second Peter 3 that says, that verse 9 says, the Lord is not willing that any should perish. And it's John 6, verse 37, that Jesus says, anybody that comes to me, my father will no wise cast out. It's just there's no pushback. Oh, not you. You're, you stink. You were with the pigs. Get away. Never again. Don't want to see you. And, um, and, and the world, for the large part, doesn't even know this, that there is a father that's sitting and waiting for them, and so we go look for sheep. But the, the focus tonight is on the people that know the path back because they've been in the father's house already. You just can't help but, but have emotion well up in your soul as you read through the last half of this, of this prodigal part. And you just see the, the open arms, the forgiveness that, that the Father is giving to those who come back. Unconditional love. Now, we can get in trouble with that term, but... Don't worry about it for a little bit. Let's just, let's just look at the vast expense of benevolence and kindness of our Lord as he says, I don't care where my son went. When he comes back, he gets a kiss and a hug. He 
saw him and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they, they, they threw a feast, a party, bring the fatted calf and killed it. I hope you don't miss the symbolism that when the sun came back, the blood had to be shed. That's what it takes for sons to come back. And uh, they, they killed the fatted calf. My son was dead and now he's alive. Well, let's move over yet to this older son because Jesus was talking about two boys, not just one. What are some things that we can observe and learn from this older son who was right there in the same story? Every event, he was watching it unfold. He, he, he saw it, the beginning to the end. Well, lesson number one that I pull out of the elder son's story and the way Jesus told it is that not everyone in the house of the father has the father's heart. Do you see the gulf between the big boy and the dad and how they looked at a person? Not everyone in the house of the father has the father's heart. Somewhere between dad and his two boys, there was a heart connection lost both ways. It was lost to the younger and the older. And I know it's not the father's fault. We're not blaming him. I'm just telling us that as Jesus stood there, I don't know if he was leaning against the, the tent post or not. I don't know if he was leaning front and wagging his fingers straight in the Pharisee's face. I don't know any of that. I just know that his eyes could communicate things that mine couldn't. And he's looking right at them and says, and there was an elder son that was right there in the house. But he didn't have the father's heart. And um, I don't know how they responded to that. I know that when Jesus told these kind of stories, people got the point. And so we don't really have their response at this. While the elder son had never left the father, he had lost a vital connection to the father. He didn't even know his father's heart. He was baffled and annoyed and angry at how his dad was behaving. Well, that means he didn't know the dad. Something had disconnected over all them years. When he actually, when dad came out, when the father came out and sat him down and tried to explain the full context of what is happening, he got angrier yet. When he was aware of his heart, father's heart, he resented it. Do you notice the lost communication between the son and the father? He comes up to the house, he hears the party, and he calls the servants. What's going on over there? Why didn't he go ask his dad? Well, I can tell you. Because he wasn't connected to his dad. He had more trust and he was more comfortable with one of the slaves than he was with his father. And this is a serious thing. This is not wasted verbiage by, of Jesus when he tells the prodigal son's story. He's not talking to one person. He's talking to two groups of people. There was no comfort to just go ask dad what's going on. Lesson number two is in the house, self-righteousness can be a problem. That's what this man's problem was. He was self-righteous. Just listen to him talk about himself in verse 29. These many years do I serve thee. I never transgressed at any time. That had to be a bunch of baloney. I never heard of somebody that that served a boss all them years and never transgressed. People aren't like that. I think he was inflating the story to defend himself. 
because of the crust of his own heart. How do you test for self-righteousness? Well, I would observe that a self-righteous person happens to be pretty good at being angry at the wrong thing and at the wrong time. Anger is a strong feeling of displeasure, belligerence, aroused by a real or supposed wrong. Now, one of the reasons, you can actually be very righteous and be angry. That's a whole discussion in itself. Just don't let the sun go down on it. That's what the Bible would say in Ephesians 4. But because anger is what it is, it is that fire that comes up in the soul. It's actually true that some people ought to get more angry than they do. And this is probably strange words you're listening to right now. But, but the, the reason is that anger is an emotion that is spurred all by... Remember? Remember how your thoughts and your actions produce your emotions? So um, if you see an injustice, if you perceive an injustice, that ought to make you warm. It doesn't mean you hate the person who did the injustice. It doesn't mean you get even with them. It just means that it's okay to feel the warmth. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. But an, a, a self-righteous person has these feelings of displeasure and belligerence aroused by a real or a supposed wrong. And that would include Pharisees who mutter when Jesus receives sinful men. They were angry at the wrong thing, but they were self-righteous. There are right and wrong times to be angry. This man, technically speaking, was angry that the prodigal had come home. What is his problem? Well, self-righteousness is one of them. A self-righteous person records history wrong. He said, many years do I serve thee. And yet right in that moment, the question is being begged, are you serving him right now? In other words, it's almost like his behavior in the moment denied what he was saying about himself in the past. And you can see how his talk was really stumbling, him, causing himself to stumble. He said, I never transgressed. Well, he was transgressing right now. And so self-righteous people tend to have twisted memories. A self-righteous person regards himself as better than the prodigals. But are they? In the end, by the time the story is over, who's the better and who's the worst? Well, even when the prodigal was down in the pig pen, who was the better and who was the worst? Finally, if a man is disconnected from his father, it doesn't matter if he's in a far country or if he's just out in the field, he's disconnected. And a self-righteous person regards himself as better. A practical way to say this is that a Pharisee regards himself as better than a publican. But you read the story in Luke 18, two men went up to the temple to pray. Well, you soon figure out the one's bad and the other's far worse. <laughs> but the bad one repents, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he goes home to his house justified. So beware of self-righteousness. It really makes the thinking cloudy. And um, it twists the memory, and um, we get the wrong values. Lesson number three is that the only thing that keeps a son out of the house is the son himself. The first son went out on his own and came back on his own. The second son went out to the field on his own, but he wouldn't come back. 
He just stayed out in the field. And we have to understand that. You know, a sinner is to be pitied. But I think that it is truth to understand that the only reason a man keeps on being a sinner is because that's what he has decided to do. Otherwise, the gospel couldn't be free choice. See that? Now, it's hard. We work with people. We meet the down and outers. We meet the rich and the famous. And it's hard to get a man or a woman to see their own need. But the truth that stands above all is that the only reason somebody's not in the house is because they don't want it. It's hard to deal with sometimes. That's what happened to both these men. When they wanted in the house, they could go right in. There it was. The father came out of the house. He actually went farther to, to, to bring the second son in than he did the first. And the second one still wouldn't come in. At least that's the way the story ends. We just let it go because it is a story. All that service suddenly is for naught because the old one just won't come in and join the celebration. And, and people will do this to themselves. Well, Jesus is talking to people right there. I think this parable shows the two faces of lukewarmness and apostasy. You have one son who rebels and cools and the other one who cools and rebels. I mean cool in their relationship with the father. But in the end, both took their turn out of the house. And tonight, as we look at this story, there's a lot more that we could talk about. The prodigal did come home. It's such a glorious picture of the salvation of the soul. But think about why Jesus was telling this story and what were the points he was trying to make. And he, what he's really trying to make is, I am a Christ that seeks the lost. But there is a group of lost ones that I can't go find because they're right here, number one. And number two, the way for them to get found is to just come in. Just come in. How simple for that elder son to just come in. <laughs> I mean, it was his own willpower that kept him out. You notice that? It was the willpower of the younger one that kept him out. And when he put his mind to going back as a slave, the path got him there. I don't know how many hills he had to go over to get there. I don't know how many miles it was from the pig pen to the house. I don't know a lot of things. But I just know that he found it to be a path that could be walked. And it wasn't like there was lions and bears and then a snake bit him. But one of the things that is glorious when the wandering soul comes back is you can always hear the finer points of how the divine presence, the grace of God, cradles them along. And uh, he that cometh to me, I will no wise cast out. And I don't know where that openness actually begins. At what point 
I mean, the father could see a long way down the road, and our father can see the whole way down the road. But it's just there's there's just things here that ought to warm our hearts and stir our souls. But think about these two men. I'm going to give an invitation tonight. If there's anyone here that is a prodigal who is out and you want to come home, it's really easy. We can help you. But if there's also someone here that's in the house, but you've lost the heart of the Father, and, and it kind of ticks you off that people come home, it's time for you to come back in the house too. What should we say? What was that? Okay, pass me not, O gentle Savior. Let's sing together. Stand to your feet if the Lord is speaking to you, and uh, we will be glad to help you get in the house. Me not a gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. coming. Thank you for helping to study these three stories. I think that Jesus told them well, and there's much we can learn from them. And let's just apply it to our own experience, however they fit. Welcome you back in 15 hours. Stand for dismissal. Father, which art in heaven, thank you for the word that we have to study, to open up our own reality. Thank you, Lord, for these three stories that show your heart. Father, there's so many things we can see about human nature, and we know that some of them apply to us. And so we ask for understanding. May your spirit drive these lessons into our own hearts and help us to see ourselves as you see us. And if there is anyone that is out, I pray, Lord, that you would use us and that you would speak to them and call them so that they can come back into the house and experience the joy of the returned younger son. Now, as we bring this meeting to a close, we ask a blessing on your lives as we go on our lives as we go from here. Keep us safe on the roads, and if you don't return, bring us back together again tomorrow morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.